Have you ever had the experience of meeting somebody you've not seen for a while and they're obviously so pleased to see you? You can just tell in their face. Um, a couple of days ago, we had a visit from somebody, somebody we'd not seen since 2014. And just his just eyes just lit up and I could just tell how pleased he was to see me. And then just earlier, Carrie came in to the building and could you tell I was pleased to see you? You could. It was just, I was just so excited not seeing her since before COVID. So um, I, I want to ask you, when you come to God in prayer, does the feeling come up, God will be so pleased to see me? Does that feeling come up? I'm going to guess probably not. And I'm going to argue that that's wrong. And this is the issue that I want to address today. If we are his children, we should have a sense of his delight in us. And so what I would like to do, I would like each of us to be able to truly accept this joy, to take in the delight that God has in us. We're going to look at Luke chapter 15, and we're going to hear what Jesus teaches about this in two parables. And the first is the parable he gives us on the lost sheep, and then there's a parable he gives us on the lost coin. And then we're going to think about how we, this morning, can feel God's joy over us. I love this picture. This is one of my favorite pictures. Can you see that well? You can see it okay. One of my favorite pictures of photographs of the, the, the lost, relates to the lost sheep. Because that sheep looks so happy, doesn't it? Like, and can you imagine how you would feel if you were around Jesus' neck like that? And he was holding you. Can you imagine how you would feel? Like, could there be a safer place? Could there be a happier place? And as I look at that picture, I just, that kind of feeling comes up in me. And that's the, the, the feeling I want each of us to have about being held securely by Jesus this morning. Because that is what Jesus is communicating with us in this parable. So let's move to Luke chapter 15. We're going to start at verse 1, which is an interesting introduction because we read, now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming to hear him, but the Pharisees and experts in the law were complaining, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So um, tax collectors, well, nowadays we might uh, dislike paying taxes, but, um, you know, the people are just doing their job. Um, but in those days, the, the tax collectors were collaborating with the Roman oppressors. And it was a horrible system. Basically, you would bid to be a tax collector, you'd get paid, so you'd get, you'd get to keep some of the money that you taxed. And there wasn't a lot of control about whether you taxed the amount you should do or you added whatever you wanted to. And if the people didn't pay the taxes, you had the Roman soldiers at your back who would come with their sharp weapons and make sure these people paid their taxes. So with this, this horrifically oppressive Roman regime there and you collaborating with them, that's, um, 
they were hated and resented, traitors to the nation, and they actually were. Uh, so the word sinners there literally means those who are living outside of God's covenant. Uh, technically, that's what it means. It doesn't just mean somebody who sins, because we might say we're all sinners. Well, that's not technically what the word means. It means someone who's chosen to live outside of God's law, and that's what the Hebrew word here means. And so these would be people that would like include prostitutes and others who'd chosen a lifestyle which was violating God's law. And um, the Pharisees would probably include a lot of other people in that category, like those who worked with animals and those who worked on the Sabbath, all sorts of people they would categorize as being sinners. Um, but here's the reasoning, and I want, I want you to really engage here. This is the reasoning of the Pharisees. God is pure. Uh, Habakkuk 1.13, you who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Is this still true? Is that true? What is written in Habakkuk? Is that true? Is God still pure? Yeah, so God is still pure. Okay, so here's a problem. Um, uh, a godly person, therefore, want to keep themselves pure. These people were disgusting and filthy morally. Surely someone who loves God will want to reflect God's character. And God's too pure to go near these disgusting people, and so we shouldn't go near them, let alone eat with them. This is the logic. Is that correct? Can you tell me? What do you think? You're shaking your heads, but why? Has God stopped being pure? Does he want us not to be pure? You have to speak louder. Okay, evil isn't contagious by eating. All right. Thank you. Any, any other? Yeah? Okay, he wants us to be closer to him to purify us, but how does that relate to these people? Yeah? Okay, we can't be a light unless we have some sort of relationship with the people who need the light. Okay, these are great answers. Um, so, uh, but Jesus is supposed to be reflecting the character of God. He's supposed to be... God's character, um, and he's treating these people as friends. Now, this is a very important subject because this relates to how we view our relationship with God. What does God think of me when I come to pray to him? What does he think of me right now? Well, we might say, well, Jesus can love us because he sees us as pure and washed by his blood. But these people that Jesus is eating with are not saved yet. And some of them might never be saved. Um, yet he's still showing them love. And um, I confess that often I feel I don't deserve God's love. I fail all the time. God must be very disappointed in me. And so really, this is about the character of God. And I want to tell you that although that verse in Habakkuk is true, it's only one side of God's character. It's only one aspect. And and the other, other aspects, very important, God loves mercy. God's character is he loves mercy, he loves compassion, and so love and compassion are core to who he is. And in a situation like that, 
it's that that he takes out and demonstrates. Um, so we need to hear this message of God's grace again and again. And uh, it's um, every moment in our relationship with him. And so we're going to continue with our passage now in Luke 15. This, and we're going to look at this parable. So Jesus told them this parable. Which of you, if he has a hundred sheep and loses one of them, would not leave the 99 in the open pasture and go look for the one that is lost until he find it? Then when he's found it, he places it on his shoulders, rejoicing. Returning home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, telling them, Rejoice with me, because I have found my sheep that was lost. Now, the Pharisees, as they're listening to Jesus saying this, are going to have some issues with it. Because um, the perception in that society of shepherds was very different to our perception of shepherds. Now, in our perception shepherds are like they look after these cute sheep and they in an, and it's a very sort of romantic vision that we have of them but um, in those days they were seen as being disgusting thieves and often they were thieves they would like steal other people's sheep or they would feed their sheep on 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 grass that didn't belong to them and um, it was very ambiguous about who these shepherds were and, and some were good but some were not and and the Pharisees viewed uh, if you had touched animals all the time you were unclean and they viewed you as being being uh, you know the, untouchable and so they were seen as the lowest level of society if they looked after animals so Jesus to start with even using this parable would have been something that was kind of shocking to them um, and it would be very confrontational to their view of God. And so even then, uh, it would have been um, annoying. Let me try and give you a modern kind of equivalent of how it would have sounded to them. Um, if God were a cleaner in a public washroom uh, and a homeless person left his wallet there, would not God spend hours searching for him so he could return it? It would have sounded so wrong and offensive in many ways to, to tell a story like that. Um, God wouldn't do something like that. And like searching for a homeless person to return their wallet. Like the whole thing is kind of deliberately, Jesus is deliberately giving them something that they're going to, be, they're going to have a struggle with right away. And then what's more, there's a big party afterwards. Um, but just going back to the tax, let's look at the next verse. I tell you, in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who have no need to repent. And um, Jesus is not condoning their behavior. He's not condoning. And we know that, um, that one of the, the tax collectors who, who received Jesus, we repented by giving back everything he'd stolen. And that's what repentance is. It's changing the direction of your life. So Jesus isn't calling him to stay in the kind of um, wrong behavior that they were in. But the main thing in this parable, the main point of Jesus' parable is the joy in heaven. Joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. What's this joy about? It's because God loves to restore. God loves to restore relationships. He loves to mend what is broken. 
And uh, some, some people have trouble thinking of God having emotions, but the Bible very clearly teaches that God is actually the father of emotions. Emotions come from him. And God here, God is just pure joy as he receives somebody back who was broken, who was an enemy, and they come back. And God is just full of joy. And the, in the story, there's a great party thrown for this. So what Jesus is trying to, to get us to, to hear from this, and what I want you to hear this morning, is the joy of God over you. Um, so this then is the parable of the lost sheep the parable of the joy of the shepherd in bringing back the sheep. Then Jesus tells, immediately after that, the very similar parable of the lost coin. So let's read that. In verse 8, Or what woman, if she has ten silver coins, loses one of them, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search thoroughly until she finds it, have you ever lost something and had to search for it? I must confess, I lose things all the time. And you find it, maybe it's a document you need or maybe it's um, your health card or you know, something important and you find it. And isn't it joyful to find it? You know, when you see it, ah, oh, so glad I found that. So glad I found my passport. Now it means I can, I can travel. You know, it's, it's, uh, there's a joy in finding something that was lost that's really just fills us and grips us, floods us at that very moment. And here is this woman. She's found it. When she finds it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me, for I found the coin that I'd lost. She throws a party. I mean, this must have been a valuable coin. But the point here is the joy is actually so much that she can't contain it and she needs other people to rejoice with us. Do you get the point of what Jesus is saying here? He's trying to convey us that, that God has joy. He's trying to convey this to us. And we need to get this. And so he's giving us these stories that we could relate to. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of God's angels over one sinner who repents. So what is it? that Jesus is trying to communicate to us about God here. I'm going to suggest three things. I'm going to suggest he's a seeking God. He wants us very much. He's looking. He wants to find. Because both of these parables are like a going out and a looking. Going out to find the lost sheep. Searching and searching for this lost coin. And so this is, Jesus is telling us something about God. God wants to find. God is looking. And the second thing Jesus is trying to tell us is we are individually of great value to him. And this is why there's a single thing in both these parables, a single sheep out of 99, a single coin, because Jesus really wants you to get that it's you in particular. Not, it's not like the generality of, you know, Jesus wants to save his people, every single person. And I don't, want you to make an exception in your mind this morning. I want you to say, yeah, this includes me. This is what he feels towards me today. And the third thing is the celebration. The joy is one that is overwhelming and God is pictured as celebrating here. Uh, 
And so I was going to give you a, a, a slide here, which is the core of the message that I want you to grasp today. You are very valuable to God. You are very valuable to God. He has put and will put a lot of effort into you. You bring him great joy. You bring him great joy. Well, you might say, well, actually, you know what? I'm, I'm here, or I'm listening to this, but I, I wouldn't call myself a Christian. Well, I want to say that these two parables apply equally to you because Jesus is offering for you to be that sheep. He's the one who's seeking. And it's not that you have to be good enough. It, all you have to do is to turn to him. All you have to do is to say, I want you to find me, Jesus. I want to be part of your kingdom and follow your standards. Just like these tax collectors, all they had to do is to say, I'm going to switch to a life of fairness rather than a life of, of robbery. And, and I'm going to follow you, you, Jesus. And Jesus accepted them in. So this is about deciding to make Jesus your Lord. Um, so... I want to tell you a story of, uh, of a man called John Newton. You've probably heard all of you of John Newton because he wrote the hymn Amazing Grace. And John Newton, um, his mother was a true believer and she taught him from the Bible. But at seven years old, he died of tuberculosis. She died of tuberculosis. And um, his father was a very tough man. And uh, really, he, he was really looked after them by this really tough man. And he was a sea captain. And he decided that his son, John, was going to be following his career. And so at 11 years old, he forced him into the life of a sailor. Can you imagine that? 11 years old in a merchant ship. And uh, John had a lot of personality problems and just annoyed people all the time. And he managed to get himself fired very quickly from this job. And then he got another job and he got fired. And, the, and it was going around like this. And uh, then as, as a few years later, he was press ganged. Now, press ganging was um, um, uh, the equivalent of conscription nowadays. So it was when in the military, when they needed more people, um, they would force people into the army, what is happening in Russia right now. But with the Navy, it wasn't done by paperwork. They would go into a town and they would just look, go around looking for anybody to look the right age and look physically fit and just grab them and take them onto the ship. It was called press ganging. And um, so he was press ganged into the Navy. And so he was then on a fighting ship and he was so... Um, uh, he was such an awkward person and a rebellious person that he was constantly getting into trouble and being punished for it. And then he so he decided he was going to desert the Navy. Well, you may know deserting the military is not a good idea. Usually it's a death penalty. Well, they caught him. He actually was flogged and put in irons, but he, um, he didn't, wasn't killed. But um, he was... Um, he was, they decided they didn't actually even want him and they sold him to a slave trading ship as a, as, a, as a sailor. And so he started working in the slave trading ship where he was, um, uh, he, he would love not just to 
not just to do evil things, but to try and get other people to do evil things around him. In fact, you know, people talk about swearing like a sailor, because sailors have a reputation for swearing. Other people would be shocked. Other sailors would be shocked at his swearing. That's how badly his, his behavior was. Anyway, um, he had, even on the slave trade ship, he was getting into trouble all the time. And so they dropped him off in Africa at a, at a slave plantation. And he was basically had to work there. And um, uh, the mistress of the plantation owner abused him. And eventually he had to run and he um, was just begging for food for his life. And then he managed somehow to get onto another ship. And uh, on this other ship, he was um, doing some Atlantic crossing and there was a horrific storm. And um, in the middle of the storm, it looked certain that the ship was going to go down. And as the ship was going to go down, he cried to God and said, God, I will change my life if you save me. And it was like a car of desperation. And the storm just stopped. And he realized he'd made this, he'd prayed this prayer. And so he began to search after God. It didn't happen instantly. It was a, it was a process, but he, it soon led to him leaving the Navy and just concentrating his life 100% to God. He became a pastor and he decided he was going to write a hymn every week. And so Amazing Grace is just one of the hymns that we have, but it's, um, it's exactly what happened to him. And he was the sheep that was lost. And, and God showed incredible love to this broken person and brought him back into him. And uh, so I want to go back to the question of God's purity. And I'd like to, um, to just, oh, I, sh- I meant to have this picture up of him while I was talking about him. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> anyway, that's, that's John Newton. Um, so... Um, Uh, I want to talk about um, how we can receive this. We've looked at the parable of the lost sheep. We've looked at the lost coin. How can we feel this? And we know that ultimately it's through the death of Jesus that we're reconciled to God. He's paid the price so that we can go free. But there is a problem um, that... If uh, we, even if we are um, sinful and dirty like uh, a tax collector and our sin is forgiven, we still do bad things. We still every day get our hands dirty. We every day think bad thoughts. How can we be close to a pure God? How can we be close? And this, I think, is this morning the main point I want you to take away with you. And the wrong idea that is often taught in Christian circles is that you're a dirty dog, but Jesus has put his pure white covering over you, so when he looks at you, he doesn't see who you really are, he just sees the purity of Jesus. And that might sound good, but it's actually a horrible way of thinking because it means you, you don't actually God, want God to see you. Not you. You just want him to see this cover over you. Uh, The idea that sort of when God comes up to you, he sort of just looks at Jesus. He doesn't look at you because you're too disgusting. He just looks at Jesus. And that's how you can be close to a pure God. And uh, that is is a horrible idea. The opposite is actually true. 
The essential you, if you're a Christian, the core you is one that is pure. But old habits die hard. And I'm just going to try and summarize these thoughts that I want you to take away in a couple of slides. Right at your core, you are a new creation made like Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17 reads, So then, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. What is old has passed away. Look, what is new has come. So what this is saying is right at your core, you are a new creation. You have a new nature inside formed by the spirit of God. And this new part of you only wants to do good. However, you still have some old lies embedded in you that are not rooted out yet. When you, when you get saved, a new, you're, 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 you're renewed, you're a new creation, but some of the old stuff is still attaching to you. And a word the scripture uses for this is strongholds. These can cause you to revert to old behavior at times. These uh, lies that are in you can revert to old behavior, but the power of these lies is defeated, so victory is possible. Galatians 5.24 says, Now those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So what that means is all the sins of this old part of you, this old flesh, were dealt with on the cross. So God doesn't even look at it. But what he looks at is the core you, his new child, his beloved, his perfect one. So our main problem is this. That although we're a completely new person, we're conscious that this, these old ways of behaving, like a zombie, are still, still moving around, still doing things in our lives. Even though God says they're dead, their power is gone, we can say no to them. Often we haven't said no to them yet, and they're still uh, causing us to behave in these particular ways. You're not a dirty dog with a white covering. You are a perfect and lovely new person, but bits of the old are still clinging to you, but they are not who you are. They're just stuck on there, they, and, they, are, and they, they can be cleaned off, they can be removed, but they're not the core you. And in heaven, there is this joy over you. In heaven, there is this joy over you. And I want to leave you with this last picture and this last verse from Scripture that I want you to take in. And this is something that we don't just take in as an intellectual fact, but we have to feel it in the same way when I saw, I saw Carrie, I could just feel this joy. When I saw somebody earlier in the week, I could just feel this joy. It's like when somebody smiles at you, which is just a genuine smile, you feel it, don't you, in your body? And we have to feel this from God this morning. This is what I want you to feel. And so I'm going to leave you with a quote from Song of Solomon. You are altogether beautiful, my love, 
There is no flaw in you. You are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. This is how God's seeing you. He sees you as a perfect lamb. He sees you as beautiful. He sees you as so lovely and desirable. He looks at you this morning and says, you were worth it. You were worth what I paid for you. And I'm going to celebrate because you are mine. He's not averting his gaze. You have to get this. You must get this because this is the core of the message of grace. If you don't understand it, your relationship with God will be troubled. Your your life's relationship with our dear Savior will not be what it should be unless you can take this point in this morning. Guilt will keep you from getting close to him. I'm such a failure. I mess up all the time. I do bad stuff all the time. What God says, he says, that part of you that does those bad things, I've dealt with that. That's not actually a core part of you. That's bits of the old still ticking to you. When I look at you, he says, you are altogether beautiful, my love. There's no flaw in you. Can you take that in this morning? Can you? Let's just pray that we can do this. And then I'm going to get the worship team to come out and lead us into prayer. Praise. Lord, we thank you. Lord, we can't understand why you should love us. But Lord, you are so clear that you do. And Lord, we cannot get away from what Jesus is telling us in this parable. That you, you just love us so much. You rejoice. You value us like this precious coin that was lost. Your heart is for us and you look at us and you say, you're altogether beautiful, my love. There's no flaw in you. Lord God, help each one of us as we struggle with our own guilt and our own feelings of unworthiness to to really take in the fact that we are so loved by you today. And Lord, when you look at us, when we come to pray to you right now, as we come into your presence right now, your eyes are full of joy as you look at each one of us right now. Thank you, God. Thank you. In Jesus' name. Amen.